we are going to kick off a new sermon series. It's titled Seven, where we are going to be walking through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So this morning, um, our Bible reading is going to be out of Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Um, If you guys have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be a Bible underneath a seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that Bible with you today as a gift from us. We would love for each of you to have a copy or two in your house. So if you're willing and able, please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Revelation chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. 
Good morning. We're back in our building. Glad about that. Glad you guys are here. Um, if you're a guest, my name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So glad that you're joining us. Just to give you a little heads up, you probably already know this. Uh, and I know it's been said uh, maybe a couple of times, but usually we don't have so much of a seance vibe in the room. It's dark because Centerpoint cut down all the power. So we're on, a, we're on a generator's power right now, which only powers about half of our building or so. And so that's why you also have the, the fans over here, which are trying to keep you relatively cool. So I'm going to try to be short in my preaching. Good luck to me. Amen. All right, so we're kicking off a brand new series. Like Jenna said, we are going to be walking through in the next eight weeks, uh, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. I want to say a big thanks to Jenna. She just read the whole first chapter and what a, what a, uh, an effort and a feat that she just walked through, but she did a great job and she did it twice. So I just want to say a big thanks to her. Um, Revelation is one of the most controversial books in the entire Bible. And the reason for that is not only because it has a lot of metaphors and it has a lot of imagery and the questions become. Um, is it this uh, speaking literally or is it speaking metaphorically or allegorically or is this speaking about the time that is John is actually writing it or is this speaking about a time that is to come? Uh, but it's apocalyptic too and so that makes it uh, very ripe for controversy. Uh, but what we're going to be doing is focusing particularly on the beginning of the book and the beginning of the book is John on an island, exiled because of his faith and particularly because of his commitment to preach the gospel and to make disciples and to plant churches. He's exiled off to a little island called Patmos on the outskirts of uh, modern day Turkey, just a little rocky island out there. And he has a vision of the risen, resurrected, ascended King Jesus and in particular, Jesus says to him, I, want, I have something to say to these seven churches. Jesus has something to say to particular seven churches in John's time. But it, all the entire series is going to be operating on this basis, so perk your ears on this. And that is, what Jesus said to these seven churches was specifically important and relevant to them. And, this is the big and, and absolutely applicable to us as well. So we're operating on the basis that we're not just looking back and saying, okay, what was it? It was good for them in what way, but also we're going to ask ourselves, how is it helpful for us? Now, before we jump into that though, what I wanted to do is before we jump into chapter two, which is what Jesus actually says to all seven of these churches, I want to talk a little bit about who wrote the book. I want to talk a little bit about who wrote Revelation, John. I want to introduce you to him, bless you. And I also want to introduce you to the risen Jesus the risen Jesus that John sees because it's not just that John's on this island and I joked with the nine o'clock, you know, you kind of picture like Tom Hanks and Wilson, but it's Tom Hanks and the risen Christ uh, out on this, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Castaway. Okay, just making sure I'm on the same page. I can't really see you. So there was no telling if that landed or not. <laughs> but, but what we see here is that John is, maybe some commentators even say as old as 100 years old when, he's, when he sees this vision. He's been serving Jesus for up to 80 years at this point. And what I want to talk about is the man who wrote the letter. What can we learn about him? And what, how can that help shape us in order to receive what Jesus has to say, not just to those seven churches, but what Jesus has to say to us, to Providence? Because that's really the, that's really the heart, the posture that I want us to take as we walk through these seven letters to these seven churches is what is Jesus saying to us? How can we incline our ear to hear the voice of many waters as he speaks to us through Providence here and now? John was a courageous man. He was a bold man and he loved Jesus dearly and he loved the church deeply. And 
it's a very simple prayer, but what I'd like to pray over you and pray for us before we jump in is that Jesus would mold us to be courageous, bold, lovers of the church and lovers of Christ. So if you will, bow your heads. I want to just go ahead and pray that for us. Oh, Father, um, I want to thank you. I'm so honored that I get to read the words of this book because in the words themselves, you say that there's a blessing with that. So I thank you for that honor. And Lord, I also thank you that you won't just allow us to read them, but help us to be doers, help us to, to hear these words and to apply them, my God. But in order for that to be so, what we need, Holy Spirit, is for you to give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. We need your help. We need you now um, to specifically begin the work of encouraging us where we need to be encouraged, convict us where we need to be convicted, challenge us where we need to be challenged. And most of all, we ask, my God, that you would calm and quell and reject any fear that would hinder us from serving you with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength. And so now as we read your words, we ask, my God, would you help for us to be read as well? We love you and we trust you and we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The first thing to know is that John... The Revelator is a guy who's very well acquainted with hardship, a theme that's going to run throughout each letter that Jesus tells John to write to these churches is perseverance and endurance through hardship and persecution. And this is something that we're not as well acquainted with, but it's important that we recognize it here because it's impossible to understand the early church apart from the furnace of the crucible of suffering that they've been going through. They've been very opposed by their culture to even just live as Christians, much less preach Christ. And so John has coming at the end of his life here and he has seen all of his friends, all of his fellow disciples. He's watched as each one of them have have slowly been, their life has been snuffed out by the Roman Empire, by those who would persecute Christians. In the book of Acts, you see this where, and I think it's Acts chapter 12, you see just like a one-liner that says James was killed by the sword. And this is no small thing because this would have been one of John's closest friends. He's watched as Peter was arrested and then he got out of jail. And then most likely by this time, Peter's already gone and been martyred in Rome as well. Paul as well has gone to be martyred. And so John is really well acquainted with grief here. But that's not the only thing that you need to know about John. It's not just that he knows how to suffer, but that this guy was close to Jesus. John loved Jesus and he defined himself, listen to this, when he, he refused to write his name in his own books, instead he would just refer to himself as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that's both amazing and endearing, but also a little coy and self-aggrandizing, you know, it's like, who, who are you? Well, I'm the one Jesus loved. <laughs> what does that mean about Peter? You know, it's like, oh, okay. But John, I think most assuredly wanted to be identified in this way because John made a massive transformation from the young disciple who wanted to call fire down from heaven to squander those who didn't believe the gospel. And then by the end of his life, he's the one who's tender talking about Jesus's love to everybody who would hear him. He wanted people to know him as that because that's how he identified himself as loved by Jesus. And that's because he knew that to be loved by Jesus was to have your identity shaped in the most fundamental of ways. Christians, to know really to understand John's life, you have to understand what he believed about what it meant to be loved by Christ. He believed that if the whole world hated him, just the fact that he was loved by Christ was enough. 
There's a couple of other things that I want to make note of here about John's life because I think they tell us about Jesus and his relationship. One of those is as Jesus is on the cross, the only disciple to be there at the foot of the cross with him is John. And Jesus peers down at him right before he gives up the ghost and he says, woman, this is your son. He's talking to his mother and he says, son, this is your mother now. He basically entrusts his own mother, Jesus, entrusts Mother Mary into the hands of John saying, you need to take care of my mom because I'm going to die and I am going to come to life, but I will be resurrected and ascend. And my mom, is, Joseph is already dead. So he says, you need to take care of her. If you want to know how close a man is to another person or how much he trusts another man, one great indicator is would he trust that person with, their fa- with his own family? And the answer here was absolutely. John is entrusted with Mary. And then lastly, after the women first hear from the angel that Jesus has been resurrected, the scripture records in John's gospel that John and Peter hear about this and they both race to the tomb. I love that for two reasons. One is it shows like their devotion to Jesus, how much they love him. They just want to see, is it really true? Is the tomb empty? But the second reason why I love it is because in the book of John, it actually records that John outruns Peter and makes it to the tomb first. which I think is just hilarious that he like wants to add that detail in to say I was faster than Peter and I made it there first because I, you know, Jesus loves me most. And he gets there to like peer in, you know, you got to kind of picture as Peter, I, I don't know, I picture him as like a husky fisherman who just can't quite make it. He, he like shows up panting, but John's already there. And he's one of the first disciples to peer in and see the empty tomb for what it is. So here John is years later at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, on this rugged island called Patmos, alone and lonely, and he's praying, it says, in the spirit on the Lord's day, which what, a, what an amazing thing to say, right? It's like in the, probably one of what you would consider the worst moments of your life. He's praying on the Lord's day in the spirit. Just as a side note, I didn't mention this, but just before they exiled John, they had no intention to exile him. Church history and tradition says they tried to boil him alive in oil, but the, the, when he was pulled out of the oil, he was just fine. And so they were just so fed up with this guy that they exiled him. So they're hoping he'll just go off to this island and die. They just want to end his influence. And as he's praying on the Lord's day, guess who shows up? Jesus shows up. It's a pretty sweet devotion, right? It's a nice little morning coffee. Jesus shows up to talk to John. This is the key to understanding Revelation. And hear me on this. As much as it is an apocalyptic book, more than anything, Jesus is a book about the risen Christ. It's a book about who Jesus currently is ruling and reigning over his church. It tells us what he desires for us. It tells us what he expects of us. It tells us what he will accomplish and what he is accomplishing. The book of Revelation is about Jesus being in control. Now, what I want to do is read through a little bit here. I'm going to read the first eight verses. And just how does John start this book? Well, he starts it in this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave him to show show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, him who was, and him who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Amen. 
Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. The book starts not just with John on an island, but John writing to these seven churches. And what he wants to do is lay out, he unpacks his heart of the Jesus that he knows. Just to give you a few, he says, Jesus is the faithful witness. In other words, Jesus is the one whom we can trust. Jesus testified as the one faithful to bring the message of the love of God, his father to the earth. And God confirmed this message by raising him from the dead, which brings to the next. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is not only alive, but John wants you to know because Jesus is alive, you and I will also be raised to life. He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. John wants us to know that Jesus is the ruler of all the kings on the earth. This has got to be a nod to diminishing the Nero of his day. So as John has been exiled to this island and all of the kings of the earth think that they're going to snuff out the message and the testimony of Jesus by snuffing out his life, he says he still serves King Jesus who rules all the kings of the entire earth. Jesus is not under anyone else's thumb or foot. Even when Jesus' followers get censored and pushed down and snuffed out and they suffer, Jesus Jesus is never hindered because he rules the whole earth. John wants us to know that Jesus loves us and he freed us from our sins by his own blood. John can't get through a book without telling you right off the bat how much, how loved you are by Jesus because that's how he lived his life. If you ever wondered, how do I know that Jesus loves me? John tells you here, it's because of the cross. You can know God's disposition towards you. Jesus' love for you is certain because he died for you on the cross. He was willing to go to the cross for you. You can be certain that he loves you. Then he says that Jesus has made us a kingdom and priest to his God. Jesus didn't only save us, but he's intent on changing us. He didn't only forgive us of our sins. He intends on taking away those sins and purging us and making us more like him. He didn't just make us forgive a bull. He didn't just make us forgive in, but he made us into priests. He made us into something holy. He made us into something royal. And then he says, Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. This is the Greek letters A to Z. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the A to Z's. If you want to know the story of the Bible, John lays it out here. Jesus is the story of the Bible, the beginning and the end. It's why John's gospel mirrors Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And verse 14, the word became flesh. John wants you to know the whole point of the Bible is about Jesus. The A to Z's of your entire life is about Jesus. That's why he finishes by saying he was and he is and he is to come. Jesus is, a, is the current king reigning. He was truly the one who lived a perfect life, died a vicarious death and rose again for our justification. And he certainly will come again one day. This is the Jesus that John serves. And I just wanna make mention before I move on, One lesson we can learn right off the bat here is how do you serve 80 years faithfully, even through a lot of hardship? And the answer is to know Jesus like this man knows Jesus. If we can know this Jesus and be known known by this Jesus, to be confident that we're loved by this Jesus, he will sustain us through any trial, through any hardship. If you want to learn something from John, learn what he thinks about Jesus here. And at the depth of his soul, this is how he greets people. He greets people by introducing them to Jesus. (laughs) Okay, now let's move on. Starting in verse nine. 
So then as John is praying, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he tells you why he's there. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Before I move on, I just want to point out something that I thought was kind of funny. I don't know if this is funny. Maybe I'm going to be rebuked by this later and by the Lord. But I can't help but think John's praying. He's going through so much difficulty. He hasn't seen the risen Lord in, you know, however many years. He's planted all these churches. He's gone through all this stuff. And he's praying. And then he hears Jesus' voice. And Jesus doesn't go, hey, John, what's up? You know, or minister to him or encourage him. He goes, hey, I need you to write a letter to the churches. (laughs) The first thing he says. He's like, hey, man, so I need you to do something for me. It's like, it's the Lord. Now, what does that teach us? For one, it's kind of funny. For two, though, the church is on Jesus' mind. The first thing he says one really weird and odd thing, and I know why it has happened, I just don't think we've really thought it through, is this idea that I love Jesus but not his church. That's not a thing. It's not. You might say, well, yes, it is. You don't know. No, I, I know. Like, I know bad people, and I know bad church people. I'm a pastor. I'm one of those bad church people. Like the king bad church guy. So I get why we say that, but it is so ill thought out. It's like looking at a husband who's in love with his wife and telling him, listen, man, I really like you. I just hate your wife. How well does that go? Let me tell you, if you have a friend that is okay with that, I need to tell you that marriage ain't really all that solid. You don't, we don't get to say this. See, John understands that Jesus loves the church. He loves his people. And to love Jesus is to be in love with his people even with all their difficulties, even with all their strangeness. And so Jesus shows up and talks to John, and it's almost like he just starts immediately into a staff meeting. Hey, man, I need you to write a letter to the churches. Listen to verse 12. So then John turns. Put yourself here, by the way, okay? Think Tom Hanks, castaway, out in the middle of nowhere by himself. He's praying and he turns and now he sees this vision. I turned and I see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. Could you imagine this moment? Just unbelievable, right? Like, listen, I have had morning devotionals. I have prayed and thought that I was really pressing in, and I've never experienced something like this. This is unbelievable what he sees. I want to walk you through just a little bit of what exactly the meaning of this might be and only because it gives us an, just an indication, a slight indication of how glorious King Jesus is. First is you see him walking among the lampstands. Now this is important because he actually defines what the lampstands are later on in the chapter. And that is that the lampstands are the seven churches. Seven being the number of completion most likely means that Jesus walks among his church. Jesus is always in the midst of his people. Jesus is always in the business of knowing and leading what's going on in this people. 
Now, now notice here that we're just the lamp stands. We're not actually the light. The light bearer walks among the lamp stands. What does this mean? The church's light is directly correlated to the church's proximity to the light bearer, Jesus. In other words, we only shine as brightly as we are in proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. In Ephesus, the threat is that he's going to take away their lampstand, meaning you no longer have any light, meaning you have walked away from me. But here we see Jesus in the midst of the churches. He is the bright and shining lamp. Then we see his long robe, his golden sash. In other words, he walks in the fullness of God's authority, both as high priest and as king. His hair is as white as snow. He's eternally wise, eternally majestic. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Jesus sees all. Jesus knows all. There is no one who will stand before Jesus one day and not have to deal with the fact and grapple with the fact that he knows you better than you know you. He knows every motivation, every nook and cranny of our hearts and lives. He sees directly into our souls. His feet are like burnished bronze, the true judge of everyone, of everything. There's not a human being that will ever live that won't stand before Jesus and be rightly judged. His voice is like the voice of the roar of many waters, speaking with the power and the majesty of the very ocean. The Psalms say that the oceans cannot be controlled but by the voice of God, and Jesus shows up as the king who sounds like that roar. I joked with a nine and said, don't ever fear with censorship. Jesus will never be censored. His word goes forward as he desires it to be so. Jesus speaks and creation obeys. You ever thought about the fact that Peter's fishing and he fishes all night, he gets nothing, and then Jesus says, let down your net for a catch, and he literally commands fish to swim into the net, and the fish go gladly. <laughs> That's unbelievable to me. The fish who have been dodging these nets all night, Jesus goes, go into the net, and they say, yes, Lord. <laughs> angels are in his right hand, seven stars. We later are told that they represent the seven angels of the churches. He literally is wielding the heavenly host on behalf of his church in his hand of power. A two-edged sword out of his mouth, Jesus' word is the very word of God. When Jesus speaks, it's as though God is speaking because God is speaking. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword ready to pierce and divide to the very bone and marrow of every human being. Jesus speaks with the authority. And then lastly, we have his face shining like at full strength. This king has glory that is unmatched. There's no glory like the glory of Christ. And check this out. John's alone on an island. You got to be thinking he's freaking out. I mean, he's been praying. He's been faithfully serving Jesus, but now he's seeing him like this for the first time. He saw Jesus after the resurrection, but remember it says that Jesus was kind of uh, disfiguring himself, keeping himself hidden from them, not letting him know that it was really him. He's a gardener. He's this. Now he's seeing the ascended king of the universe. He's seeing the glorious Christ, the one who currently rules and reigns. And Jesus tells him, I have the keys of death and Hades. It's a wonderful moment. Now I need to get nerdy on you for a second because I couldn't find a better illustration than this, but just forgive me ahead of time. I have to talk to you about the Lord of the Rings. So it's going to be brief, but it's going to be important. So there's the story of the Lord, the Lord of the Rings centers around, obviously you have like the, the ring bearer is this little hobbit named Frodo, but one of the main characters is this wizard and his name is Gandalf, okay? Told you it was nerdy, just bear with. 
and they basically build what's called a fellowship. They build this group of guys and other mythical creatures to try and take this ring of power to destroy it because it was going to destroy the whole world. And Frodo is chosen to be the ring bearer because he's the most unassuming among them all. He doesn't want power, but, but he is the only one that can really bear the power that's laying on his chest. And so this group, this fellowship, they try to make their way to this thing called Mount, this place called Mount Doom, which sounds about as bad as it is. And on their way, the guy, the leader of the fellowship is this wizard. He's very wise, very old, very powerful. And if they, they meet a, a, a number of obstacles, but the number one obstacle is this mountain. They can either go over it or they can go under it. And he's very adamant in the film, the cinematic version, and also in the books, he has no interest of going under it. You don't really know why until later. So they try to go over it, but they're met with this massive opposition that keeps them from going over it. The storms are too bad. They have an evil... Uh, an evil character that's basically sending opposition their way. And so you see in the wizard Gandalf's face, he has to go under it. And you don't know why, but he just does not, he's not interested in this at all. But they have to go through what's called the Mines of Moria, which are these really dark, terrible caves. They make their way through there and they realize quickly it's been overrun by these dark and evil forces. And they're basically running around trying to escape from these armies full of these swarms, these hordes of evil orcs is what they're called. So they're running away and they're trying to get away. And finally, the fellowship makes its way over this, this tiny little bridge over a deep chasm. And it seems like they're finally going to get away. But, but now you realize that Gandalf didn't, the reason he didn't want to go into the mines had nothing to do with all of these little, this evil army, even though they're really fierce, but that there's something else that was really keeping him from wanting to go, namely that there was this shadowy demon dragon that lives down there that he knew he was going to have to face down. And so he turns around and the whole fellowship is like, hurry, come, we can get away. And he turns around and he basically, in the cinematic version, you see this picture of him standing in between this demon, this deep ancient demon dragon and the fellowship. And he stands, you guys know the famous line, right? You shall not pass. He stands in between. And so the story goes that as he, you know, he basically stands his ground, the demon dragon tries to get him, falls down into the chasm, and you think that they've won, but the tail of the dragon grabs him by his heel, pulls him down, and right before he falls, he tells them, run, you fools, and jumps, falls down. That's the, kind of the end. The fellowship mourns. They're just thinking, oh, my God, our leader is dead. And all you see is him falling down with the demons, right? He's this demon who's kind of won. And there's tons of allegories here, right, that we could see with Christ, both the standing in between the fellowship and the dragon, facing down this dark and evil force. And then, you know, obviously the, the allegory here from Tolkien is that the heel will crush the head of the serpent, but that ultimately the, the head will also bruise the heel. So he pulls Gandalf down. But then the second book starts with what happens next. He goes down into the depths with this dark demon and he fights him. He fights him, and it's his fight to have, and he finally slays him. And when you finally realize what's happened, Gandalf is alive, but now it says that he's turned from Gandalf the Gray, the old wise wizard, to Gandalf the White. And you're like, well, that sounds like a Power Rangers theme. What has happened? What's the transformation? What's the change? Well, you don't really know until a specific turning point critical moment where Gandalf, who's still wearing his old gray clothes, is in front of a king who is held by possessive evil power, and he mocks Gandalf, saying, you have no power here, and Gandalf throws off of his gray cloak, and all you see is the glorious white, and he expels this demon, and all of the fellowship is like, whoa, who is this dude? And it's so different, like, and, and Tolkien does a beautiful job of this. It's so different that Gandalf talks as though it was a whole other life. 
Like when they ask and talk to him in the books, it's like he kind of remembers that. But now who he is now is totally different than who he was then, even though you know it's the same Gandalf. Like his authority that he walks in as the white is different than the gray. And it's so much so that he's the, the leader who leads them out of all of these terrible and dark situations. And the reason that I tell that story is not just because it's nerdy and awesome, but because there is a difference between worshiping Jesus as the living king or John worshiping Jesus as his dead old friend. That's true for us too. Which version of Jesus do you worship? Is it the living risen Christ who rules and reigns currently right now leading the church or is it the dead old marginalized Galilean peasant that once said nice things and did nice things but now we have to face the world on our own with his teachings only? Those are two different things. Christianity is those who worship the risen Lord, the one who's alive. John's vision of Jesus reigning and ruling in full authority is the vision we must regain in order to face the hardships of life, in order to face the persecutions of life, and in order to conquer and truly persevere as his people. If the church could just catch a glimpse of this Jesus, the confidence, the peace, the courage, the hopefulness that would result from it would shock us. Jesus is alive. One thing we've said since the beginning when we planted Providence is, and it seems small, but it's not small. I am a pastor at the church. Even if my title is lead pastor, we have a senior pastor. His name is Jesus and we believe he's still alive and he still has opinions about what we do. He still cares about the sermon series. He still cares about our lives. He cares about your marriage. He cares about how we raise our kids. He cares about these things. He's intimately involved. Sometimes we think that Jesus doesn't have an opinion. He does. And guess what? His opinion's the only one that matters. Okay. Now, how does it end? Listen to this. And, and I really resonate with John here on how he responds. Listen to verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> Don't you feel like, yep, that sounds about right. Oh man, you gotta love this line. Okay, I gotta get through it. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And then he tells him to write down what he sees. It is almost impossible to overstate the importance of fear not in the scriptures. Jesus says it so much. It's like, how many times is he going to say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, until we realize that maybe we have a problem with fear. I want to list out to you four potential false fears, and then I want to give you the antidote that Jesus offers here as we close some, all of us deal with fear on various levels, but listen to this carefully and see where it is that maybe you fear the most. The first is a fear of self, maybe also known as a fear of failure, but I say it's a fear of self because really what you're afraid of is that you're not enough. You see this with Moses as he is called by God to go and lead the children of Israel, but he says, I'm a stutterer, I'm the wrong guy. You see this in Gideon when he's called to lead the armies of the Lord, but he says, I am from the weakest of all the clans, Lord, you've got the wrong guy. You see it from Saul who's called to be the king of Israel, but he hides among the baggage because he's not ready to be the king. The fear of inadequacy plagues us and we forget that Jesus is the one who makes us qualified. Number two, fear of others, fear of man. 
You see this in Jacob, who's so afraid of his brother that he's willing to be flattering and deceitful, uh, flattering to his face, deceitful behind his back. You see the fear of man in Peter when the servant girl asks him if he follows the Lord and he's so scared of what might happen that he even capitulates to her. Some of us, we live so underneath the fear of man that we are unwilling to say that which is true and that which is helpful and that which is gracious because we don't, want, we don't know what someone might think of us. And we actually change our behaviors in the hopes that we can get more friends and gain more approval from our fellow neighbor rather than reveling in the fact that you're already approved of by Christ. Fear of circumstances. This is where you look at what currently is and it's in direct juxtaposition against that which God has promised. And so you're afraid that maybe that which God has promised will never come to pass because there's no way that God's gonna overcome your circumstances. You see this with Abraham who is promised by God that he will be the father of many nations, more children than the sand of the sea or the stars of the sky. And yet his wife is barren. And he says, there's no way this can add up with this. But instead he should have trusted that Christ is the Lord over his circumstances. The one who oftentimes has made those circumstances seem impossible has done it for his glory (laughs) so that he might get the glory and we could not boast in our own abilities to make our lives turn out the way we want them. And then lastly, the fear of the future. The fear of the unknown might be the one thing we fear the most and it's crazy because it's the one thing we can't even articulate. We just don't know what's coming. We're just anxious about it. Whatever's coming because of our experience in life must be bad and so we're just nervous about what it is. Therefore, it robs us of our opportunity to be obedient today. You see this in Peter as he's called to lead the church and yet all he thinks about is what about John? He's told by the Lord that he's going to be a martyr and he says, well, what about John's life? What about the future? What's going to come? And Jesus says, what is it to you? You follow me. Or the way that Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount is tomorrow has enough worry for itself. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. There is one fear that the Bible encourages. There's one fear that can actually be the antidote for all of these false fears. That is Proverbs chapter one, verse eight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And that's because fearing God fuels faith. When you fear God, then you can be faithful when he puts his hand on you and says, don't be afraid, I love you. And like Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now your faith is encouraged. Now your faith is increased. Few things are more debilitating to the Christian than fear. When we operate on the basis of these false fears, we're distracted from our truest and deepest calling to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. But this morning, my prayer for you is that you would hear the words of Jesus, the words that Jesus said to John, fear not the one whom Jesus loved, knew that if Jesus told him not to fear, he had no reason to be afraid. If you're loved by Jesus, I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you have to be afraid of? Or as David said in Psalm 27, verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Maybe this morning, think about where are you afraid of your own inadequacies? Maybe think about where am I afraid of others and their opinion of me? Maybe you should think about where am I afraid of my current circumstances? Where am I afraid of the future? But ultimately you should land, do I fear the Lord? And have I heard the words, you are loved by Christ? Have you felt his hand on your shoulder to tell you to not be afraid? And maybe, just maybe, the reason that we haven't really experienced that is because we're still worshiping our dead friend Jesus and not the risen king who's alive and able to say it right now this morning. 
hear me, Jesus is still the active pastor of his church. He still has this under control. Jesus is still calling the shots, still guiding, still leading, still ministering, still caring, still healing, still loving, still preaching. And the most fundamental question that I want to leave you with this morning as we go into the seven churches is number one, can we incline our ear to hear what the risen Lord Jesus has to say to us now? And then number two, have you really believed what he already has said about you in the gospel, that you're his and that you're loved? That's my prayer for you this morning, if you'll stand to your feet. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, what a wonderful savior you are. As my mind ponders the idea that you're walking amongst us, I'm just so humbled by it. How should I even continue talking. But nonetheless, Lord, we want to acknowledge your presence. And I ask now, would you speak through your spirit, through your word, directly and clearly to each one of us as we so desperately need. May we hear you say, fear not. And may we incline our ear to everything else that you might say to us. God, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Calm us where we need to be calmed. Strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. Heal us where we're wounded. Jesus, incline our ears to hear your beautiful voice, the voice of many waters. We pray it in your precious name. Amen.